ideas and insights provides a rich analytical framework for thinking about some of the most pressing issues of our times. Our goal is to promote a dialogue about the common good and forge a consensus on what we owe each other as fellow human beings. Engaging, enlightening, ideas and insights offers original and bold vistas for making sense of the world. Join us weekly here on this television station. I am Badrina Trao, your host for Ideas and Insights. Hello and welcome to Ideas and Insights. I am Badrina Trao, your host for this program. In this episode, we will discuss the growing importance of dignity in the public discourse. Across the world, we are witnessing massive movements led by hitherto marginalized groups demanding dignity. In the United States, the quest for dignity is the bedrock of the Black Lives Matter movement. Likewise, in countries of Asia, Africa and Latin America, people on the periphery are in no mood to acquiesce in their low status. They wish to be treated with respect. They want fairness. They will settle for nothing that diminishes their humanity. Originally confined to those with high status and privilege, dignity has metamorphosed into a universal right. There is now a global consensus about the centrality of human dignity as it applies to all persons. Responding to this development, over 100 constitutions mention dignity at least once. What explains the mass appeal of dignity? Not only do we all have dignity, but also each is endowed with an equal quantum of dignity. Dignity, thus, is a great equalizer. It comes with the same benefits and burdens for all under the law. One of the most exciting aspects of dignity is that from an incipient idea, it is now a constitutional value and a legal right. The Universal Declaration of Human Rights, the International Covenant for Civil and Political Rights, and the International Covenant on Economic, Social, and Cultural Rights all proclaim the non-negotiable character of dignity. They impose affirmative duties on state parties to protect and promote human dignity. Dignity has captured the public imagination because it affirms our capacity for self-determination, upholds our autonomy, and protects our ability to pursue the goals we value or have reasons to value. The strength of this idea and its mass appeal emanate from a profound realization that human beings matter. They matter in and of themselves just by virtue of being human. Dignity is premised on the principle that our personhood is sacrosanct. The state cannot treat people as fungible commodities. Professor Erin Daly, professor of law and H. Albert Young Fellow in constitutional law at the Widener University School of Law in Delaware has written extensively on dignity rights. She is the author of Dignity Rights, Courts, Constitutions, and the Worth of the Human Person, published by the University of Pennsylvania Press in 2012. Critically acclaimed, this second edition of this book came out in 2020. In her book, Professor Daly traces the trajectory of dignity rights in different parts of the world and evaluates their impact on people's lives. Based on an exhaustive survey, she points out that over the last 60 years, 
courts in Latin America, Europe, Asia, Africa, the Middle East, and North America have developed a robust jurisprudence of dignity on subjects as diverse as healthcare, imprisonment, privacy, education, culture, the environment, sexuality, and death. Courts in Germany, Peru, Colombia, Hungary, South Africa, and India have embraced the idea of dignity and used it to advance values such as autonomy, uniqueness, and equality. Professor Daly highlights two major achievements of dignity jurisprudence. First, it recognizes that reducing people to their bare life, a life devoid of access to basic necessities, is an affront to their dignity. Hence, the Indian Supreme Court expanded Article 21, the right to life and liberty, to include social and economic rights, such as the right to education, proper nutrition, and a clean environment. Second, courts in Latin America and India have increased the layperson's access to justice through amparo and public interest litigation cases. By diluting standing requirements in such cases, these courts have opened their doors to anyone seeking to vindicate their rights of the less privileged. While courts in several countries have enthusiastically adopted dignity rights approach, Professor Daly points out that these promising developments have barely touched the American justice system. Opinions of the Supreme Court rarely invoke dignity. If they do, it is often in dissenting opinions. Based on a formal understanding of dignity as personal autonomy, the Supreme Court has used it mostly in privacy jurisprudence. Our justice system is yet to recognize the importance of the umbilical connection between dignity and genuine democracy. Regardless, Professor Daly hopes that dignity rights will invigorate democratic activity and usher in a new ethos of civic dignity. She joins me now to explore these issues. Welcome to Ideas and Insights, Professor Daly. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. I want to begin with a point you make right at the beginning of your book. You say that your book traces what was an incipient idea, namely dignity, uh, and its transformation into a constitutional value and an enforceable right. How significant do you think is this uh, transformation? I think it's potentially profoundly significant and, and even in a certain sense revolutionary or radical, if you will. I think when the, when the, um, there were mentions of dignity in constitutions prior to World War II, but the really important turning point was immediately after World War II when the um, people who created the United Nations adopted in the charter a commitment to recognizing and affirming the inherent human dignity of every person. Um, and then that was developed, um, sort of further developed in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights three years later. Um, and then from there, it not only sort of spread throughout international human rights law into most of the major human rights documents, but it also spread down into the constitutions of each country, which has real profound significance because for a couple of reasons. One is that courts, once it's in constitutions, interpret it and apply it in specific cases, there's much more enforceability of constitutional rights um, than there is of international human rights. So through that process, courts can make it real. They can make dignity, they can animate it, they can give it life in specific situations. 
in addition, because each court is interpreting and applying its constitution for its own people in its specific country, we have sort of an opportunity for each uh, constitutional culture, each country, to define what dignity means for themselves. Um, and, and in that way also, I think it just becomes much more real to people. All right, so you say that the idea of dignity is uh, manifesting in jurisdictions across the world. Courts are beginning to use the language of dignity in a number of uh, matters ranging from right to education, to access to water, to prisoners' rights, and so on. And you say in your book that this use of dignity by judiciaries across the world is strategic. What task do you think is this idea doing, actually? Yeah, I think that's what's so interesting is that a lot of these cases could be decided without reference to dignity. They're equal protection cases or they're free speech cases or they're privacy cases or something else. And yet courts in a lot of these cases are sort of making a decision to rule not just on the basis of constitutional text, but on the basis of the idea of human dignity, whether or not it's in the constitutional text. Um, and I think it's strategic in the sense that it um, reorients the focus in a case from the social goals or the governmental values to the impact of law on individuals. And in a lot of cases, the effect of that is potentially to um, by, to recognize the inherent worth of every person within the community. And I think ultimately that has sort of a democracy promoting effects, if you will. Well, not everyone is too excited about the use of dignity. Uh, Professor Ronald Dworkin, legal philosopher, does not quite favor this idea. He faults its plasticity and he says that it's become flabby through overuse. Do you agree yeah. with Professor Dworkin? Um, it's a great phrase that it's become <laughs> flabby through overuse. Um, can't deny that. Um, no, I, I, I don't agree with it, in part because I think if it's being overused, it's because it's useful. Um, I think that the, the, the explosion of dignity cases that we're seeing around the world in every different constitutional culture, um, in every different part of the world, we're seeing courts take this idea seriously in, as you say, sort of all these different areas, all these different contexts. And I think that um, what we're seeing it, there is that courts are actually saying, this is actually a very useful idea. It's not so much flabby, um, I think that the concern that people have is that it can be used in so many different contexts. But I think that the reason it can be used in so many different contexts is that it represents what's important to each human person. And there's a lot of different kinds of things that are important to people, right? Their bodily integrity, the integrity of the mind, the full development of the personality, their individual identity, all of those things um, are important to people, and those are all dignity claims. All right. The idea of uh, dignity, though widely recognized, is understood differently in different uh, jurisdictions. Germany assigns a great deal of importance to the notion of dignity. So does Belgium. But if you go to Israel, the Israeli courts have ruled that dignity is not absolute, it's a relative idea. So is this notion of dignity, do you think, uh, context-specific? If so, why? So I think this is a, um, this is a really complicated question. Uh -huh. um, and, and here's how I would sort of approach an answer, if you will. I think that if you 
first of all, just to, just to say explicitly what you've implied and what I implied, which is that there are cases, important landmark decisions about human dignity in the US, in Canada, in Latin America, in Europe, in Africa, in Asia, in the Middle East, all over the world, from all different sort of constitutional cultures, if you will, common law and civil law, um, legal systems that have their roots in a particular religion, like Pakistan talking about dignity as, an, as a Muslim concept, um, South Africa talking about dignity as a, as a sort of an African concept associated with the idea of Ubuntu, Israel talking about it as a Jewish concept, etc. So we see this in all different cultures and certainly in India um, as well. And so it, it shouldn't surprise us or disturb us that each country as they apply dignity in specific cases will say, in our jurisprudence, this is what it looks like. It's associated with equality or it's associated with um, just, uh, you know, voting, uh, freedom of expression, for instance, or, or other things. It shouldn't surprise us that courts applying the principles, the unique principles of each country's jurisprudence. Do we consider proportionality? Where do we put the burden of proof in cases? All those kinds of things that apply to um, to constitutional cases generally are going to apply the same way in dignity cases. What's interesting to me is that if you look at all these cases from around the world, there is what a term that I find very useful, an overlapping consensus. Mm -hmm. That is, it's not exactly the same in every part of the world, but there's a consensus that the cases sort of gel into this understanding of dignity as represented as representing the inherent and equal worth of every person that's not um that that definition isn't provided in any kind of treaty or anything but it is although it is provided in an aba resolution affirming dignity rights in that way um, but it's not provided in any definition of, um, of international law or anything like that. But if you read the cases, that's what they all come to. And they're saying the same thing, only they're applying it in different ways in, in the context of different specific cases. So in an abortion case, it might look in one way. In an employment discrimination case, it might look a different way. Um, in a prison case, it might look a different way. Right, to follow up on the point you just now made about overlapping uh, consensus, we notice an interesting phenomenon in dignity jurisprudence. Even in constitutions where the idea of dignity is not mentioned or where it is very narrowly defined, we see judges literally reading dignity rights into existing law and uh, this forensic ingenuity has uh, come in for a great deal of uh, applause and has also been criticized. Why do you think judges are doing this? They are trying to interpret it in their own light. What is it about dignity that makes them want to invoke it whenever it suits their uh, interests? I think it's a very appealing idea. Um, and it's not only just an appealing idea, but it's an idea that's central to the meaning of law um, and, and democracy. That this whole system of law works because we fundamentally assume that every person has equal worth, equal inherent human worth. Um, and the point of law really is to avoid the conflicts that would otherwise be resolved just through power um, and just sort of through a system of might makes right. But instead, we have this system of law. We have this commitment to rule of law. In most of the countries that we're talking about, we have a commitment to democracy that's bounded by constitutional guardrails, if you will. And those guardrails 
are premised on this very simple but profound idea of equal human worth. And so it comes up, it comes to judges in so many different ways. In the United States, for instance, it's nowhere mentioned in the Constitution. And yet the court has said that the protections of the Eighth Amendment, for instance, protecting against cruel and unusual punishment, are about nothing less than the dignity of man. Why do we want to prevent government from imposing cruel and unusual punishment? Because we fundamentally believe in the dignity of man. The court has also said in a First Amendment case that the right to express yourself freely, the reason that's so important is that each person has human dignity. Fundamentally, that's why we, one of the main reasons why we protect freedom of speech because of the dignity interest in being able to express yourself as you wish within the limits of you know, social confines. But there's a fundamental dignity-based interest in expressing yourself as you wish. Um, in the Obergefell decision, the court said that the right to marry the person of your choice, regardless of gender, is so important both as a matter of liberty and as a matter of equality. And if you look at those two fundamental values in the Constitution, what those two things are really talking about, sort of the confluence of liberty and equality, is about human dignity, being able to be on an equal terrain with other people, not stigmatized, not ostracized, not demoted to second-class citizenship, and being able to make fundamental decisions about your own life like whom to marry. So it's just, it's, it's, it's an idea that's at the root, at the core of so much of what rule of law really is about. Well, that may be true, uh, but we have to address some conceptual challenges. Let me explain this. Indeed, it is true that we all agree that we all have dignity, that it is inherent in us, that we all have the same quantum of dignity and so on and so forth. But it is also true that while invoking the idea of dignity, different courts have uh, conceptualized it differently, used it for different purposes, and the outcomes have been different. One wonders, therefore, if there is some kind of uh, conceptual messiness concerning dignity that we must first address. In fact, you yourself talk about it in your work when you say that if dignity is immanent, then how can there be a right to dignity? Who can take away something that is uh, innate in an individual? So these conceptual issues, I think, need to be addressed. What do you think? I think that what we've seen in the jurisprudence and, and all of my work and all of my mm -hmm. sort of um, the, the lessons that I've learned from doing this work really all just come from reading the cases. So I'm really sort of reporting on what I see courts around the world doing. I'm not advocating for any kind of you know change. I'm really just reporting on what is what courts are doing that I personally just find so interesting. I absolutely and and so I absolutely agree with you that there is a messiness at the heart of this. There's a lot of things that are messy about this. And you're right. One of them is this idea that how can something that's inherent in us, a, a human quality, like eye color or something else, just a human quality, um, how can that be? a legal right. That's conceptually very complicated. Um, what's interesting to me, and, and even just what is the definition of dignity? I, I sort of proposed one definition about the inherent and equal human worth of each person, but that's just sort of what I've taken from the cases. The, what's interesting about this is that the judges in these countries have move forward on the development of dignity jurisprudence, have used dignity in their cases without having answers to these questions. They've just found it in all of its messiness, a valuable enough concept 
that it's worth integrating sometimes in the core of their jurisprudence, sometimes in certain parts of their jurisprudence, but not other parts or at the periphery. Um, but what's interesting is that I think everybody would agree that this is a messy concept. It doesn't have a clear definition. We don't have answers to everything that you can wonder about dignity and dignity rights. And yet courts are developing that through the common law. And the same can be said of equality. We don't have all the answers to equality. The same can be said of liberty, of other things also, right? So law isn't about categories that are fixed and defined where all the answers exist and then they just get applied somewhat mechanically. That's true. Um, Legal categories are indeed fluid and they have to be fluid because that would enable us to interpret these concepts in the light of our immediate needs. But that having been said, I am interested in exploring this idea further because if you look at the jurisprudence across the world, the same idea has been invoked by courts very differently, in fact, diametrically opposite ways. Let me explain this. The Hungarian Supreme Court invokes the uh, idea of the inherent dignity of human beings to rule against capital punishment. The American Supreme Court has not used this idea in that manner. Isn't that anomalous, don't you think? Um, I don't think it's anomalous um, to expect courts in different countries to rule differently in different cases. I think that's part of the beauty of this, is that we have this idea that's universal, that's recognized in the UN Charter, it's recognized in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, it's recognized at the foundation of both international covenants on social and economic and cultural rights and on civil and political rights. It's recognized globally throughout the world in a number of different ways. And yet, when we get to the point of implementation, we're looking not at international law so much as much as at domestic constitutional law. So we shouldn't be surprised that Hungary's, and, and both of those examples that you give, Hungary's constitutional culture is, is very complicated specifically, I mean, in a lot of ways, but specifically with respect to dignity, because they did take a turn. Um, and the U.S.'s uh, relationship with dignity is also a bit of an outlier in the world. Um, but, but even aside from that, um, I don't think we see, um, I don't think we should be surprised that different constitutional co um, courts articulate their, their constitutional values or their constitutional culture in different ways. I mean, that's why each country has a different constitution. It values different things. It articulates different things. And it has a court that interprets those things in different ways. So I don't think we should be um, concerned about one country saying this and another country saying that. I think, in general, the fundamental idea of human dignity, putting aside how it's applied in, in a given context, but the fundamental idea of human dignity I don't really see very much conflict in the cases. I think they're representing dignity in the same way. They may just be saying, well, even in keeping with human dignity, it's proportional or you know, we accept this or we don't accept that. There are a few exceptions to that, but on the whole, I think the courts are describing human dignity conceptualizing human dignity in very similar ways. All right. The next point that I want to explore with you concerns the three attributes of dignity that you discuss in your book. You talk about dignity as immanence, dignity as individuation, and as equality. Let's now turn to the notion of individuation. This idea refers to the thought that all of us are unique in our own ways and our dignity entitles us to be able to preserve our uniqueness and 
constitutions and legal systems must afford us the privilege to do so. Now, again, from a conceptual point of view, if uniqueness is something that we privilege while talking about dignity, then do you think it comes in conflict with, say, the idea of equality? What do you have to say about that? How can you know, we be, on the one hand, unique and at the same time equal? You know, again, I think these are they're conceptually complicated questions and they're complicated jurisprudentially, meaning like at the, at the level of how courts are actually deciding cases. I think that what's important about among, uh, th there are a number of things that are important about the idea of human dignity. One is equality, that everybody has to have the same amount of dignity, that the whole idea of it falls apart if I can say that I have more worth than you. Because as soon as I can say that, that entitles me to make all kinds of decisions for you, to mistreat you, and to, and to um, diminish your humanity in ways that the idea of dignity prohibits and fights against and protects against. Um, the idea of individuation is also very important. It respects each person's uniqueness. So to say that we're equal doesn't mean that we're identical. People are not clones. Each one of us is different in, in all kinds of different ways. Um, you know, values, where we're from, how we think, how we talk, whatever. Each one of us is different. And what dignity does is it says, when we think about how law operates on people, we need to sort of respect that each person has a different way of expressing their own humanity, while at the same time, making sure that everybody has equal opportunity to express their humanity. So if I want to marry a person of my own gender, that's a choice I should be able to make. I should be able to do that. If you want to marry somebody of a different gender, that's a choice you should be able to make. We're not identical in that way, but both of us have the same worth. And so we have the same right to have agency over our lives, to make decisions for ourselves about how we want to live our lives. Your point is well and taken except that I want to add a caveat. Uh, indeed, we are not clones. And uh, to think of individuation in terms of sameness obviously will be conceptually flawed. Even so, I'm sure you will agree that in uh, several instances, we notice when people assert uh, cultural rights, for example, right to freedom of religion, for instance, that often comes in conflict with constitutional values, and uh, courts then have to address these anomalous situations. So there is a, a bit of conceptual messiness here, but you seem to suggest that that is fine because dignity rights are doing the work they're supposed to be doing. I'm suggesting it's fine because courts don't seem, courts are not saying because of that messiness, we can't move forward on this. They're either acknowledging the messiness or not, but saying we're still going to use dignity as the concept. We understand it well enough and there's enough of a core there. And we think it's so profoundly connected to law and to what we're doing as judges that we're going to use this concept, even though it's messy in precisely the ways that you're identifying. Um, so I, I think that what we're seeing in these cases, and the reason I mentioned sort of same-sex marriage, and I mentioned the Obergefell decision before, and same-sex marriage is an example, is because it's a really great example of how courts around the world are using dignity in very similar ways. Courts in Canada, courts in South Africa, courts in the US, courts in Europe, um, courts in, in India and the Indian subcontinent um, have all used the concept of dignity to advance rights 
of sexual and gender minorities. When again, I don't think they had to. In none of these cases did they have to. They could have decided those cases on the basis of, of liberty or equality. And yet courts in all those countries have chosen to advance the rights of people precisely because of this of this concept of dignity that they found useful enough to refer to. There are cases, I think very difficult cases, where dignity, where the dignity claims are strong on both sides. And those are those can get complicated. Abortion for many people is one of those examples where there are dignity claims on either side of the debate. I think what dignity is doing in those cases, so, so that it is not necessarily providing an answer. It's not telling us who should win, but it's providing us with the framework for thinking through a very complex issue. It's providing with us with a language, a vocabulary, and a conceptualization of what's important in law so that we can think through what kind of abortion law would it advance the human dignity of people? What kind of religious freedom law or freedom of speech laws would advance the human dignity of people? Let me ask I, I you. I think functioning in that way for some courts. Okay, let me ask you one last question on uh, conceptual issues, if you will please bear with me. Uh, let's now turn to the idea of dignity as equality. Now, the U.S. Supreme Court has ruled that uh, discrimination is unacceptable uh, because it is unfair to those that are discriminated against, and we saw this in Brown v. Board of Education. Yet, when you look at affirmative action jurisprudence here in the United States, you find that unlike other jurisdictions where courts have ruled in favor of affirmative action, upheld affirmative action, because it constitutes a net gain in terms of advancing human dignity, here in the United States, the same Supreme Court that ruled uh, so progressively in Brown v. Board of Education says that affirmative action is just as pernicious because it privileges group identity. And uh, that to me sounds somewhat anomalous. What do you think? I think that's a great example of the work that dignity can do. And the examples that you give really show the difference in a court's jurisprudence between, on the one hand, understanding equality as being based on this premise of human dignity, which is what you see in a lot of countries, and removing dignity from the equality calculus. So that if you don't think about human dignity, you might be tempted, as our US Supreme Court has said, to be sort of formalist in your understanding of equality. You might be tempted to say, everybody should be treated the same. We shouldn't pay attention to race. We shouldn't talk about race. And everybody gets into college based on their own merits and nobody talks about race. And that's a formalist way of thinking about equality. And it's a way of thinking about equality that focuses on the rule, everybody should be treated the same, and doesn't focus on the impact of laws and policies on individual human beings. In other countries where dignity undergirds the, equal, the, the conception of equality and the work that equality is doing in law, they will, like our court in Brown, ban discrimination because discrimination violates human dignity, right? If I treat you not as an individual person, but as a member of a group, if I say you don't get the same access to certain goods as this other person does, I'm saying they're worth more than you are, then discrimination denies dignity. But for those courts that are looking at equality in the context of human dignity, 
what they're saying is that affirmative action can very often advance human dignity. That it's not enough just to not discriminate, but that to really affirm human dignity, ensure that every person has the ability to fully develop their personality, the ability to have access, to have agency over their lives, et cetera, et cetera, to be treated not like a second class citizen, but to have those same opportunities. Those courts will say, from a dignity standpoint, we equality demands some form of affirmative action. We see that in India, for instance, and in other, and in many, many other countries. Our court, because they haven't embraced dignity as a basis of equality, doesn't go there and stays in a more formalist realm. So you're absolutely right, there's an inconsistency there. And I, it's a very good example of the difference between a dignity-based equality jurisprudence and an equality jurisprudence that's not based on human dignity. There's another area of uh, anomaly that I would like to draw your attention to. Unlike other jurisdictions, the U.S. Supreme Court has conceptualized dignity mainly in terms of autonomy, which is necessary for the full development of one's faculties and personality. The U.S. Supreme Court has invoked dignity mainly in privacy uh, jurisprudence, as you know, and uh, has ruled on abortion-related cases uh, mainly viewing it as an autonomy issue. Contrast this with the situation in Germany where they have a more expansive idea of dignity. And uh, the dignity of not just the uh, a mother but also the fetus is recognized. Now, do you think that dignity uh, interests and the notion of autonomy and self-determination, they come in conflict, particularly in the context of uh, abortion jurisprudence, both in the U.S. and globally? Yeah, um, as I said, I mean, I think that abortion jurisprudence is, is one place where dignity gets really complicated, not because we disagree about what dignity means, but just because if we conceptualize it as a, as a tension between a woman's interest and the interest of a fetus, there are dignity claims arguably on both sides. And so that makes that area difficult. I think that you're right in the sense that, um, you know, dignity jurisprudence in the US, I gave a few examples, First Amendment, Eighth Amendment, and the same-sex marriage case, for instance, and other privacy cases, Casey, um, as an abortion case also about dignity. Um, but by and large, our court has not sort of seen dignity as undergirding the constitutional, uh, sort of as being a, a fundamental constitutional value. They've looked at it, they've identified it in a few places in a few different ways, but it hasn't sort of permeated constitutional jurisprudence the way it has in so many other countries. Um, and so I think that we, um, in the US, to the extent that the court has uh, recognized human dignity, I think you're right that the American conception of dignity tends to be more, not surprising, more individualist. Not surprising in the sense that I think a lot of people think that sort of American culture is more individualist. We have much less of a sense of the collectivity than exists in other places. And we have much more of a sense of a person making those decisions autonomously on their own. Now, I don't use the word autonomous um, or autonomy in connection with dignity precisely for that reason. What autonomy means literally is making your own rules. And of course, in society, nobody makes their own rules. We live in society with other people. We, we are, a, you know, we, we, as, as one of the cases say, you know, no man is an island, right? So nobody has a dignity right to say, I'm doing this and it doesn't matter what anybody else is doing. This is just how I'm doing it. That's not a strong dignity claim as it's recognized throughout the rest of the world. In the rest of the world, we see 
that each person can express their identity and their personhood individually, but that law regulates how people live in community with others and that a dignity-based law will respect that humanity of each person, but will ensure that people live together in community. So much less, a, maybe a focus on um, self-development, on agency, but not so much on autonomy as this individualist attribute. All right, let's now move to this idea that the ability to entertain hopes is intrinsic to the notion of dignity. You mentioned in your book that the German Constitutional Court ruled against imprisonment without any chance of parole on both grounds of freedom uh, uh, of liberty and the right to dignity. Here in the United States, though, we routinely send people to prison with no chance of parole for 20, 30 years. Why do you think we are lagging behind? Well, I think there's, um, you know, our, our, the, the law that governs our criminal justice system um, is probably a conversation for another day. I think it's obviously a complicated thing that, that um, uh, sort of can be explained in a lot of different ways. Um, I think that this is another example of um, how you can see the difference that dignity makes. That in a constitutional system that's committed to the protection of human dignity the way the German constitutional system is, one of the things that dignity does is it shifts the focus so that we focus more, as I mentioned earlier, on the impact of the law on human beings, how it feels to be the person who's um, on whom the law is acting. Um, and it also takes seriously those things that make us human, that are important to being human. And I think that that set of cases is so interesting because for the exact reason that you, that you identified, what the court's saying there is that the ability to hope, and in that case specifically, the ability to hope to regain um, entry into society, not just the ability to hope to survive, but the ability to reconnect with society, to live in community with others. That hope is not just like a great thing that everybody should have if they deserve it, but it's a fundamental aspect of human dignity which means it's inalienable, which means it's, um, it cannot be forfeited. And so the German courts are willing to take even the most hardened criminals, the people who have done the most egregious things, people who have violated other people's human dignity in profound and terrible ways, and still say, yet that person who did that, that person's still a human being. They're not, as Desmond Tutu said, beyond the pale. They're still within a member of the human family, to use the language that the UDHR uses. And so we still, no matter what, always have to respect that person's dignity. And an essential part of dignity is having the hope to keep you going each day, that you will get out, that you will someday regain your connection to society and gain entry back into society. In the US, again, we have said, the court says in many cases, it repeats this line over and over about how the Eighth Amendment is about nothing less than the dignity of man. And yet it hasn't developed a set of ideas around that. It sort of uses that as a trope. And yet it doesn't seem to take the full measure of that phrase. And so it doesn't, in its cases, think seriously about what it would mean to have um, a criminal justice system that, in fact, took seriously human dignity the way we see, say, the courts in Germany have done. I'm actually working right now on a project to do exactly that, to look at how um, a criminal justice system committed to human dignity might look, how it would be different than the system that we have today. 
that's the most timely study because uh, <laughs> we in the United States need to pay attention to that. But let me move on to something else which is just as interesting. The nexus between dignity and social and economic rights. There is a great deal of consensus that dignity means nothing if people do not have access to what's called the basic and minimal decencies of life. How do you understand the minimal decencies of life, Professor Daly? You know, again, I think that's just, I do think that's really an interesting issue. And again, the U.S. is an outlier here. We do not tend to expect our government to provide for us, whereas in other countries, um, people do. Um, and the courts have upheld that notion that um, every human being, every member of the human family, every member of the polity is has dignity as an, and is entitled to live with dignity. And that means not just having the right to say, this is who I am, I want to express myself however I am, or even having those civil and political rights that we tend to recognize more of to some extent in this country. But it also means um, for some of the reasons that we talked about before, it also means that people have to live um, with dignity. This is in Latin America, the phrase that is used is called la vida digna, to live with dignity. And we see that also in the Indian Supreme Court, which has for many, many years described the basic necessaries of life, food, clothing, shelter, in addition to um, the ability to express oneself in writing and learning how to read, in addition to, as the court says, mixing and commingling with other people. So all of those are some of the basic necessaries of life that a country committed to human dignity will provide and will ensure and protect. One of the ways that some courts have gotten to that point of bringing social and economic needs into their dignity jurisprudence is first just sort of understanding again what it means to be human. And it means having these basic things. But also what they've done is they've, they've noted how extreme poverty, for instance, can isolate people. And this goes also for, for cases about health, about the right to health, another way in which the US is an outlier in the world. Um, but cases recognizing that health is a human dignity right. Also recognize that if you are destitute, if you're illiterate, if you have a health condition that keeps you isolated, this is obviously pre-pandemic when to some extent we're all isolated, but the courts have recognized, that, have recognized that those conditions isolate people from others and therefore um, violate human dignity. And that the government's obligation is to provide people with the wherewithal so that they can not only live like human beings, have enough food, have clean water, have a healthy environment, have shelter and, clo and adequate clothing, et cetera but enough so that they can be in community with others, participate in political life and social life and cultural life. Those are dignity needs as well. And they require a certain, they require the government to pay attention to the material conditions of life to ensure that people can live with others. In the little time that we have left and we are running out of time, let me uh, ask you two quick questions. First, though well-intentioned, judicial forays into uh, policy making is fraught with a lot of problems. The epistemic competence of judges, for example, uh, the idea of uh, depoliticization, for instance, the idea of polycentricity, meaning that an issue that the court addresses has ramifications for several entities, and so on. In other words, there, is, uh, there are well-founded reasons for why some people would balk at the idea of courts wading into social and economic rights issues. 
What do you think of that? So I don't have data to back up what I think of it. So this is really sort of at the level of theory and intuition and to some extent common sense. My view is that when courts are protecting human dignity, particularly in these social and economic ways that we were talking about, um, as well as in civil political ways, like the right to free speech, the right to vote, the right to participate in elections, the right to freedom of assembly. There are case, dignity cases about all of those things in many countries around the world. And my feeling is that what those courts are doing is not being activist in the sense of taking more, um, more for themselves, sort of arrogating judicial power and saying, this is going to be a judicial issue. Now we are going to decide this constitutionally or judicially and taking power away from the political branches. My feeling is that they're doing the exact opposite, that what they're doing is creating a citizenry. They're making sure that every person has the right to free expression, has the education to freely express themselves, has the food and, and, and water and clothing and housing and health to be able to participate, not just in community in some social sense, but also in a political sense. So by, by advancing this dignity jurisprudence, what they're really doing, I believe, is creating um, a bigger and more robust and more protected space for democratic activity. They're actually building up the democratic sphere, the, the sphere of political discourse and political decision-making um, by advancing dignity rights in this way. This is what I've called participatory dignity, that aspect of dignity that gives you, as Hannah Arendt said, the right to have rights, the right to participate in political decision-making. So I, I think that this is a different, um, courts that are advancing this are not really being activist in the way we think of activism in the sense of judicial arrogation of, of authority. They're really saying, we are giving you the people the tools to be better citizens and forcing the government to respect that in order to be better citizens, your dignity has to be respected in all these different intellectual, emotional, physical ways. All right, in the uh, very little time we have, I want to end this interview by asking you one last question. You talk at the end of your book about how the uh, idea of dignity and the entire dignity jurisprudence has A, advanced democracy in several countries, and uh, B, made some difference in different uh, regions of the world. If you step back and look at what some have described as our infatuation with this idea of dignity, do you think it has made tangible differences? You know, I'm not an empirical scholar. I don't have studies to support this. What I would say is this, given the choice, I would much rather live in a world where dignity is respected and where the law promotes and protects every single human being's dignity than to live in a world where it doesn't. To me, it seems a very, very important idea that we always need to sort of hold dear, um, even if we can't necessarily measure the impact that it has had. Um, I'll leave it to others to sort of talk about the dignity-based democracy, say, in Europe or in other in Latin America and other parts of the world. Um, but it, it just seems to me an idea that we're, we're better off betting on dignity than betting against it. That is uh, an encouraging thought. Thank you, Professor Daly, for taking the time to share your ideas with us. We appreciate it. Thanks a lot. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. That's it for this episode of Ideas and Insights. Thanks for joining us today. Next week, we will discuss Lost in Thought, The Hidden Pleasures of Intellectual Life, a new book by Dr. Zena Hitz, published by Princeton University Press in 2021. In her book, Dr. Hitz says, we can enrich our lives by accessing the less known joys of learning for its own sake. 
She argues that intellectual pursuits untrammeled by considerations of money, status, power, and glamour can help us reclaim our dignity, attain communion with fellow human beings, and find meaning in our lives. Join us next time for an exciting discussion with Dr. Heads. Until then, stay safe and goodbye.